Hello and welcome to the Dumb It Down podcast. I'm your host, Eric Larson, joined today for a third time with my good friend, Vlad DeRoche. Vlad came on the podcast recently, about a month ago now, and gave Actually, us- Correction, two months ago, before the war started. Thank you, two months ago, to talk about how a war in Ukraine may start and some things that he was seeing that led to that conclusion. About a week later, the war did start. That's when the podcast was released. And now we've had two months of lots and lots of news from lots of lots of sources. And I think that Vlad is a really good person to give his perspective as he has some Ukrainian news, Russian news, and American news all processed in his head. So Vlad, um, just to start off, I think we need an update. Is your family safe? People you know over there? What's uh, what's that look like? Yeah, thanks for asking, man. They're, everybody's fine. Luckily, um, that can't be said for all Ukrainian families, of course. So my family's in the southwest of Ukraine, uh, not as far west as I'd like them to be, but um, there have been some rocket fire that's hit uh, the outskirts of the city. Um, for example, there's a uh, TV tower that got hit that was about uh, 10 miles north of where my dad lives and then knocked out some windows in the, in the building uh, next to them just due to the shockwave. But everybody's safe. Everybody is good. Everybody um, has food, they have running water, they have electricity. I still I talk to my dad every day um, on Skype. Um, so everybody's thankfully safe. So appreciate it. Well, I think everyone's happy to hear that. And yes, of course, condolences to all of those who have lost people and continue to because it's quite troubling, um, you know, even over here from from the Western civilization of the US, it is quite troubling. And I think most of our listeners here could probably use a little bit more information from someone that they know or someone they relate to. So that's why we brought you here. So Let's recap a little bit. So like I said before, the war had not officially started last time. Uh, Vlad is still more than qualified to speak on some of that. So given what we where we left off last time, what would be your update as to kind of why things escalated and Russia ended up invading? Okay, so uh, a few kind of recap points from the last time we spoke on this podcast. So one of them, of course, is the very simple thing of, hey, did we, was did I predict that this was going to happen? Absolutely not. So when we talked, you would ask me directly, do you think there's a war coming? And I said, most likely not. I think it's still saber rattling. Of course, you can't rule out uh, a start of a war with uh, an actor like Russia that is um, unpredictable and is uh, Putin is known for his risk-taking ventures you know, in different countries. So I did not predict it, um, but we did talk about the, you know, how the troops were amassing at the time, and we did talk about um, the low approval ratings of the president, right? Vladimir Zelensky, who now, of course, has the opposite case where he has very high approval ratings, and we'll talk a little bit about why that is. And I'm sure the whole world now knows his name and who he is. He was little Ukrainian fireside chats. He's a very inspirational figure for the for Ukrainians, and I think for a lot of the world at this point. And also. We talked a little bit about how the U.S. Uh, intelligence agencies at that point were predicting that Russia would invade, and they were basically saying that there's invasion coming next week, the week after next. Um, you know, so at this point, of course, we're way past that. Russians have invading, uh, have invaded, and we're I think in day 52 of the war itself. So there's a lot of information there, and we can kind of sort through it. One thing we'll touch on is the parallels, as a lot of our listeners are Americans. So specifically on Zelensky, kind of 
his background has some parallels to a former American president. But take us back. So let's let's go back to maybe a month and a half ago or when the war started. So Russian forces obviously invaded. What were Russian objectives at the time? I think a lot of us heard in the media that the Russian forces were overwhelmingly stronger and, you know, this would kind of be a wrap. That obviously is not true. Were Ukrainians under that same impression? And, you know, what what changed the outcome in their favor? Yeah, so I was actually under the same impression. So once they did invade, I was super worried. Uh, I was, you know, in constant contact with my dad. And uh, honestly, Ukrainians, the Western prediction kind of matched the, a lot of the Ukrainian predictions. My, my, my family included my dad's and mom's side of the family together. They thought that Kiev would, would fall relatively soon. So um, the reason for that, of course, is Kiev is super close to the Russian border, right? Only, I think, it's under 100 uh, kilometers away from the Russian border, I think, if not less. That plus the fact that I think Ukrainians weren't really expecting the major offensive to happen in that direction. I think they were expecting most of it to happen in the east and the south. So I was on the impression it would fall very fast. And a lot of Ukrainians, uh, probably, I'll probably say most Ukrainians that weren't in the military, probably were expecting uh, a quick kind of, let's say not defeat, but a quick, uh, you know, relative collapse. Including Zelensky? That is... That's a good question. I don't think that's, uh, I don't know that. I can't know that. I mean, maybe he did, but I think that's a good segue actually to talk about what, um, what kind of happened in the first few days to have, to have avoided that quick collapse. And I think one of the things was, like we said before, Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, not very well liked uh, right before this invasion. And what he did that was unique is that if you were talking about a, a president who's not popular, who's a comedian in his former life, and he, you know, you wouldn't think of this guy as like a warrior, a, a badass, you know, a guy who could, you know, who would just literally stay in the place that, and he's target number one, right? So the invasion happens, there, you, have, you have Russian forces attacking from nine different points on the border of Ukraine. And one of their, and, and there's the, the objectives of the Russians, of course, are to denazify, again, our, the Ukrainian president is, is Jewish, right? To denazify Ukraine demilitarize Ukraine, and uh, I think it was to win uh, full autonomy for Crimea and the Donbass region, which is the eastern part of Ukraine that has been destabilized by Russia. Closer to the side that's closer to Russia. Exactly. So um, that was their objectives, right? So completely ridiculous. Um, and so what Zelensky did that was super monumental, super inspirational is that he stayed. And there were offers later that came out for example, from the from the uh, American intelligence, where they where Americans were like, "Hey, we can get you out, and we need to get you out." And he said his famous line, "I don't need a ride, I need ammunition." Right. So this guy, who's a comedian, who wasn't seen as a particularly brave, you know, political leader, just stayed. And not only did he stay, he led. Right. He started his little fireside chats. He's really good at social media. That's how part part of the reason why he was able to be elected. You know. What are and fireside chats? Fireside chats, kind of like along the same lines of FDR during World War II. Right, and the uh, in, in at least in the American part of the war. So FDR, I think, would have weekly or daily fireside chats, meaning he would go on the radio every single morning and he would give you an update of what's going on on the war front. This is a similar thing, but for the 21st century. So you would have him speaking direct, directly speaking to the camera, and he would just tell you what's what happened that day. Right, what kind of uh, where the Russians are invading, how we're resisting, how the Ukrainians are doing, all that stuff. What kind of help is coming from the West? What kind of help he needs from the West? 
He would also use a lot of those fireside chats to put pressure because he knew, knew those videos would be forwarded. There would be, and we can talk about the social media aspect of this uh, later on, but basically he knew this stuff was going to go viral or he expected it to. And that would increase pressure on the Western countries to give more support, more solidarity to the Ukrainian people in terms of military aid, financial aid, and also sanctions on Russia. Yeah, I think some of the the fact that social media has had a large impact on this war is not surprising, but it's very unique to this current circumstance. So in case you weren't aware, Zelensky, former comedian who played a president in a Ukrainian show and then used that surge of popularity to actually run for president, win presidency, and the whole time social media was you know, a, a driving force, correct? Yeah, I mean, think about it as like a more sophisticated version of Trump on Twitter. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Whatever your politics are. So what he would do as a, as a good example is he would, uh, he just, he was able to talk to more directly to his constituents, right? So he would just turn on his phone. He would uh, basically do a selfie video on Instagram and he would explain whatever is going on. If there's any kind of controversy going on, he would just turn on the video and be like, listen guys, like, don't believe in this. This is what's going on. The media is going to try to whatever, try to mislead you here, but this is what's going on. And again, his approval ratings were super low before the war started. But the benefit of that sort of direct communication during wartime was that when there were rumors coming out that he had left the city, he would literally go outside of his office and you could see all the, the, the landmarks that are famous to Kiev. And he would just do a selfie video. I was like, guys, I'm, I'm here. I'm here with my, with my crew right here behind me. Everything's good. We're here. We're not going anywhere. We're staying here to the end. Like, don't, guys, don't worry. Keep, you know, keep, you know, keep, uh, keep up the fight. Stay strong. And that worked. That really helped to mobilize the Ukrainian people, you know? And I think the reason that, that media and messaging is so important in this topic is because a lot of Americans here are, you know, you're not seeing the Ukrainian news, but we are seeing what Western outlets are trying to cover. The other thing we're seeing is, you know, what's actually happening. So I think it's hard to <clears throat> consider, <clears throat> excuse me, Russians who are seeing the same thing, how they could support this kind of thing. And of course, the opposite of Zelensky at this point is Putin. I think Vlad did a great job of talking about how this was kind of Putin's war beforehand. And the fact that he still has whatever percentage of their population convinced that this is a war, war worth fighting is surprising to everyone in the West and the Ukrainians who just you know, bl blatantly see that it's a problem and it shouldn't be happening. And those three objectives that you stated earlier are BS. So a little bit on you know the Russians coming in, part of the reason that they failed is because they didn't really have the motive. Uh, their funds were misdistributed. I guess clarify that issue for me and the disconnect between what Putin thought and what actually happened in the war. So I think probably one of the things, especially if you probably, um, if you're active on social media, what you'll notice is, I mean, this is one of the unique uh, things about this war is that it's, it's basically completely televised and almost in real time, right? You can, we can argue about how valid certain uh, sources are, but I mean, generally there's been, you see videos of Russian tanks being destroyed. You see videos of Russian helicopters being taken down. You've seen, Russian prisoners of war, uh, you know, explaining what, what's happening. You've seen, and you know, on the other side as well. Um, so that's kind of the unique point to this thing. And um, what happened, and, you, and what, what happened in the first few days, is you start to see, um, kind of, we 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 can we can get into the propaganda on the Russian side, which is of course even the stated objectives is kind of a sort of propaganda to denazify and to demilitarize Ukraine, which is basically a a throwback to the World War II 
uh, patriotism that was so heavy during the Soviet Union times. And the whole purpose of that is to say, hey, Ukrainians are Nazis, so it's okay to come in there and use military force to impose our will, right? And that's a source of propaganda. On the other hand, Ukrainians, I think at the beginning was very important is the social media had shown kind of how Ukrainians were resisting using a lot of we weapons supplied by the West, like the Javelin, right? Which is an anti-tank uh, rocket essentially. And they, Ukrainians would be taking out dozens and dozens at this point, hundreds of tanks and armored uh, personnel carriers, all that stuff. So that kind of, first of all, that showed that, hey, Ukra the Ukrainian military is very capable, A, B, the Russians are a lot more incompetent than we had uh, expected. I think some of the terms I've heard, which I really like, is a colossus on clay feet, I think is what I heard. Colossus on clay feet. In colossus on clay feet meaning you have this myth of this big, big, giant, you know, effective military force. But in reality, mm. when you actually, when the rubber hits the road, it kind of just locks up and is actually, you know, is able to collapse on itself. And this is what we're seeing or have been seeing recently is that the logistics of the Russian army are not keeping up with the actual, with the with the extended uh, invasion. Because if you're invading on nine different points on a, on, a, on a border that stretches over, you know, about 2,000, just under 2,000 miles, I think, imagine the amount of logistics, the amount of organization, the amount of planning it takes into not only organizing that, but keeping that up when it doesn't go to plan and they don't take over Kiev in the first three days. This all leads to a collapse, uh, right? And you, and then when you have a um, the Russian troops that are basically stalling, and then you are in Russian, Ukrainian territory with Ukrainian troops that have military experience, a lot of them, and are fighting for their own survival, for their freedom, for their families. You know, morale is one of those things you can't really put a number on because in the beginning, a lot of the news sources you see, there's no way Ukraine's going to win this. Look at the look at the overwhelming force that Russia has. But when you actually look at it in further detail, right? Devils in the details. You don't talk about morale. You don't talk about what the experience of the troops actually are, right? Ukrainian troops are actually very experienced, right? We've been in a, in a frozen conflict for the last eight years, right? Sure. So you have this basically battle experience of hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian troops, and you have a lot of Western weapons that make a lot out of a little, and you can, you can inflict a lot of damage on Russian uh, personnel and Russian equipment that is stuck in Ukrainian soil. Yeah, so Russians coming into the country, little experience, little motivation, think that Ukraine is going to just fall and like welcome them because they're so kind of brainwashed and they're brainwashed because Putin has had control of that country and the messaging and the media for so many years. So we have heard some things about certain Russian oligarchs speaking out. You know, the US has put a bunch of sanctions onto Russians. We've heard about Russians even forming kind of riots or protests and i'm sure a lot of them are jailed but it sounds like you know there, there is some percentage of the population who doesn't support this cause but i guess it just doesn't matter because um you know putin still has control how how have what the u.s and others response been the western nation's response how has that affected kind of where are we we are to date is it working is it not so let me let me kind of divide that into two points one point is uh, I know that Biden in the beginning kind of said this is Putin's war of choice. I remember he used those words pretty deliberately. And that's kind of – in any discussion when you talk about governments that are doing something that let's say is inhumane or violent, uh, in the case of Russia, of course, criminal in my opinion, and yeah. uh, is is this something that a dictator has chosen and now his people have no choice but to go with it? Or is it something that the people also 
like if you were to ask them, they'd be like, yeah, we support the war. And of course, the answer is never one or the other. It's somewhere in between. And unfortunately, what we're seeing now in, in Russia is that a lot of people are behind it, especially the older generations, that their primary source of news is the television, right, which is 100% state controlled in Russia, which means all the information that's coming out is what Russia wants. As one uh, point of contact, they can't even say the, the word war in on their news channels. So all they can wow. say is special military operations. And there's actually some funny videos, again, on social media, where a like a host or a person who's being interviewed messes up and says, and the war... Uh, and the uh, spe- oh, wow. and the special military, and he's like, "Oh boy, like, like, am I gonna get jailed for this?" And now, of course, the people that are speaking out are getting jailed, right? If you can, if you say, if you say war in social media, you can potentially get fined or detained. I mean, I think something up to like 15 years in prison for depending on the like the gra- the gravity the of the the comment that you state. That's, I mean, they could say like you are basically undermining the the Russian military. That's kind of the, the charge. Okay. So basically what you have is you have certain people that have the balls to go and protest. They get locked up, right? That's like tens of thousands of people, right? Then you have people that are not happy about the war. They don't want the war to happen, but they're scared, right? Because they're going to get locked up if that happens. And then you have people that are, but that don't care, right? And then you have people that are the older generation that think that actually buy into the fact that this is Nazis, right? They're, we have to denazify Ukraine because Ukraine was planning to attack Russia and Donbass first, you know, that kind of propaganda, right, that you're hearing. So there's, there's a lot of people that believe that. Um, we have a lot of friends even in the U.S. that have a lot of their sources from the Russia that my mom fell out with. You know, she has a lot of Russian friends and some of them she doesn't talk to anymore because they just think they message my mom and they're like, what are, you, what are your people doing? Why are your people spreading this misinformation? Why are they blah, blah, blah? It's the 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 propaganda unfortunately the propaganda machine in Russia has worked effectively on and and most of all on their own people so you have unfortunately and I guess again polls are very tough because if you do a poll in Russia and you say do you support the president like what are you going to say so I think the official polls are somewhere at eighty six percent eighty five percent which of course is crazy but the reality is is I don't know what it is but I would over if I it's over half but under eighty six if I had to guess yeah. So, so right. It doesn't sound like Russians are going to stop their own war very soon. So have the sanctions worked? Um, it sounds like, you know, some oligarchs have fled. I know some ships were seized. It sounds like the European countries that are very dependent on Russian oil are trying to scale that back, but you can't really just flip that switch very quickly. So do you see kind of getting into, you know, where are we now? Are those working? Uh, Ukraine is certainly doing its part, but do you see it kind of dwindling? What are you seeing in general? So that's a good question. I think the problem with sanctions, in my opinion, and I'm going to take Gary Kasparov's kind of viewpoint here, and I think the point here is that um, sanctions are supposed to be preventative. So sanctions are supposed to be something you put in place to avoid a situation like this. But once once Russia has pulled the trigger, which they have, it's too late. We're already in an active war, so sanctions are... I mean, unless they completely disable the country, there's no way that sanctions are going to end this conflict. Now, so what's happening now is they're still ratcheting up the sanctions. And that's a good thing because, you know, um, you need to put bring, first of all, you need to take away the war purse of a country, right? So they have reserves and I still, Europe is paying, you know, billions and billions of dollars to Russia for the oil. And of course that money is being used to further fund this war, right? So sanctions are important that they, that they reduce the amount of money that can be poured into the war. One, two, they can isolate the country, right? And, um, and offer kind of a, maybe a, not an off ramp, but I think it, it allows kind of a pathway back to 
to pulling out the troops. So for example, Russia pulls out the troops, sanctions are relieved, right? But we don't see that happening. We're rationing up the, 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 the sanctions at week by week by week, uh, and still we don't see his change of behavior. And I think one of Kerry Kasparov's points is that he's not, we're not talking to a democracy that listens to public opinion. So Russia is not going, what are the people saying? They're saying, oh, okay, the sanctions are hurting us. Let's try to lift the sanctions by removing our troops. No, they, the problem is Putin doesn't listen to public opinion, right? He makes public opinion and he tries to influence public opinion by using his propaganda. So he doesn't, he doesn't it's not a bottom to top system. It's a top to bottom system, right? So it's too late for sanctions now, and I think the most important thing, and maybe we can transition to that, depending on what other questions you have mm -hmm. now, is what, what Ukraine needs now is military support as much as humanly possible, right? So, of course, shut it, yeah. So, right before we get into that, <clears throat> there are a couple kind of facts that I think are pretty powerful that I wanted to touch on, notably the three massacres that you wanted to talk about, just to illustrate what <clears throat> exactly has happened and why it's so problematic and why you all really need this support as it's a human rights issue, to say the least. Yeah, I guess this touches on the point of why should you care? We talked a little yeah. bit about this. We talked about how on the previous podcast, the reason why it's important to pay attention to this conflict or this potential conflict at that point was that it could lead to World War III, right? It could lead to American leadership in the world and also for things like other conflicts of the similar nature like Taiwan and China, right? Now we're way past that. Now the war has already been started. It's been going on for almost two months. And what we have here is not only a, as Russians have described it, a, a plan to denazify and demilitarize Ukraine, but now you've seen, initially it was just, it looked, it was, it was just, you could interpret the initial phases of this war as Russians just mitting, missing their military targets and hitting civilian targets. Then as they started using more cluster ammunition and wide area effect uh, artillery, meaning stuff that's not precision based just to destroy one small target, but stuff that's supposed to basically essentially carpet bomb a certain area, right? Uh, hitting hospitals, Civilian kindergartens, areas, yeah. uh, maternity wards, um, all kinds of stuff that has nothing to do with militarization. And so this is what we're seeing now is we're not only seeing an invasion of a country trying to impose its will in another country that's, that has very limited mean, very limited objectives. We're seeing a essentially a almost a total war where you have civilians that are being killed indiscriminately. Um, and I have three touch points on that. One touch point, I'm sure you guys have at least heard this, which is now being branded the, the massacre of Bucha, the Bucha massacre, which is a town just about 20 kilometers outside of Kiev in the, in the Kiev metropolitan area that was initially under the control of the, of the Russians in the first phase of the war. Now Ukrainians have taken it back. And what they've discovered is atrocities that we haven't seen since the Second World War. So we're talking about People with you know with with their hands bound behind their backs, shot in the back of the head. We're, we're seeing there was one man whose head was cut off and burned. We're seeing signs of women being raped, women that were basically found naked, wrapped up in a coat in a basement with signs of physical abuse and and sexual abuse. We're seeing people's teeth that were completely pulled out, which is you know torture. We saw the mayor of that town, Bucha, and uh, her, her family basically buried in a shallow grave, again, with signs of torture. This is the kind of atrocities that we haven't seen since, since the Second World War in Europe. Of course, there's Aleppo in Syria, in Syria. There's all kinds of stuff that, that we've seen similar things in. But for us to see something like this in Europe to this degree is just insane. And if you're ever wondering why should you care, 
this is, again, you can take those pictures and make them black and white, and you could be looking at World War II photos of you know, some of the worst atrocities that the Nazis um, actually did. And I would make the argument it's actually much, much, much more sinister, much more evil, because at least the Nazis had a philosophy, right, or a ideology that, that basically said that Ukrainians were just not worth the dirt that they were st standing on, right? That they were un untamensch, right? They were not even human. So to kill a Ukrainian means nothing, right? It's not even a human that you're killing. Russians are claiming, at least in their propaganda, that Ukrainians are either their brothers or they're the same people. Mm. So for Russians to be killing Ukrainian civilians in such an indiscriminate and disgusting and brutal, inhuman, war crime manner is to kill your brother in that way is so brutal and so evil that it's just, it goes against any, you know, good instinct in a human being. And I think we're, we're looking at the worst crimes probably for the last 70 years, you know, in Europe. <clears throat> yeah. Troubling is just a complete understatement. I, I feel for everyone affected. So obviously everyone wants this to end. Uh, Putin is in power. It's tough to get him out of power. <laughs> Another understatement. Um, you know, I think I was hopeful and maybe some others that the Russians that were not supporting the war would kind of stage a coup or an uprising and take him out. And, you know, we're all back to normal. That is not happening, probably not going to happen. And he does have control and these things are happening. And in the social media area, era, to see this in almost real time uh, and the examples I've heard from Vlad are shocking and jarring and uh you know, I, we like to have some hope here. We like to look at the, the glass half full. I'd like to look to the future a little bit and, and see how this stops. And I think one piece of that is that Putin needs to have, he needs to claim a victory. It's not easy to do given that they have suffered some setbacks, but is there a way for him to claim a victory? Is there a way to stop this torture and this suffering that kind of gets us back to a semi-normal and would, you know, come out as a win for the very valiant and defiant Ukrainian people? That's a good question. So, um, so I would just want to kick that off by saying that um, Russia is, it has, like, the good thing is, silver lining here is that Russia has stumbled in this, and in in it's been a complete disaster for the Russian military. They have met none of their strategic uh, objectives. Uh, of course, I mean, some of them are just ridiculous, but Ukraine has been able to like counterattack in some cases, which is nobody expected Ukraine to be able to counterattack and take back the area, you know, uh, land, land. So that was uh, pretty incredible. But essentially, as far as getting Russia removed, one of the things we talked about in the previous podcast is um, what do what do sanctions do? Can they actually, you know, form a, you know, uh, let's say, kick off a change in the government. And what my dad told me when he was in the Soviet Union was that the reason why the Soviet Union collapsed is because there was a total economic downturn, right? Where you could, you had to stand in line for bread. You couldn't get all the basics, right? So at that point, what kind of, how can you have trust in your government? How can you have any kind of, uh, you know, any kind of support for your government when, you, when they can't even provide the basics? So yeah. that is what Russia has to get to for there to be a real change. The problem is even with the sanctions, Russia has options to sell their gas to the Chinese, to the Indians, and I think there you won't, you will never see a complete collapse. But as far as ending the active phase of fighting uh, right now is in the, on the 9th of May we have the victory in Europe Day coming up, and that's a very significant holiday for the Russians. Right? This is they are 
one of their greatest achievements as far from the Russian side, Soviet Union side, is that they beat the Nazis in World War II, right? And that day is one of the biggest holidays of the year every year in Russia and formerly in Ukraine. I mean, when I was a kid, there was fireworks, right? Every day on the 9th of May and literally every fire, you would count the fireworks and you would, it would count the years that have passed since the victory in Europe, right? Over the Nazis by the Soviet Union. So this is a very significant day and is, and is in a lot of totalitarian dictatorial regimes. Symbolism, messaging, marketing is super important, right? I mean, just look at North Korea, look at how you know, he dresses up like a, you know, like a peacock. Same thing with Gaddafi, all these people, you know, uh, you have, this is very important. All these parades are very important. So this, and what happens on the 9th of May is you have this huge parade in, the, in central Moscow near the Kremlin where all these tanks, all these missiles, all these planes fly by to demonstrate their might, right? What is important here is that Russia has gained, has, has not even captured one large city. Mariupol is the one they're closest to capturing. And this, it's, been, it's been under siege since the very beginning of this conflict. And at, even as late as last week, I heard some British analysts going, oh, I, I, can only, I, I can't imagine that Mariupol will stay in Ukrainian, will stay, uh, it will, will stay in the resistance uh, of Ukraine for any, any matter of hours. It's, it'll, it'll fall at the latest tomorrow, right? That was a week ago. So still Mariupol is holding, even though the situation looks very, very dire. So what Russia needs is a, something they can spin into a victory, right? Not the victory they were hoping for in the beginning, but, let's, but to take Mariupol, for example, uh, to take all the region of the Donbass, because at that, because in the beginning of the conflict they only had one a little piece of it, so they want to take that whole region. They want to take Mariupol to say, "Hey, actually, our strategic objective the whole time was to capture the south and the east, and we've done that. And look at us, we're great. It's May 9th. Look at the planes flying. We're so powerful. Russia's awesome. That's what he wants. And I think that might be a potential place for Putin to kind of put a pin in it and end the act of fighting and start the negotiations based on a frozen conflict." So hopefully things could end. That could be a good symbol of Russian victory just to end the, the massacres itself. But it doesn't seem like, you know, Russia is going to fade from the limelight anytime soon. Hopefully sanctions keep up uh, and the U.S. can continue doing their part. Another question I wanted to ask you, but the U.S.'s part, I think that there's kind of two Two sides to your thoughts on U.S. involvement, and one is any threat of nuclear escalation is not worth it to kind of the world, the piece of the world, uh, to the U.S. itself. And then the other piece is the U.S. should go and supply weapons directly to Ukraine in order to have them stop this conflict so that they can kind of do the fighting on everyone else's behalf and put Putin back in his place before things escalate to, you know, him his desires to invade Poland and other countries, which are pretty much stated, uh, his desire to get the USSR back together. So is the US doing enough in your opinion or what would you suggest they do to change that? So I gotta take again, Gary Kasparov, guys, if you have, if you, again, I think my, a lot of my viewpoints here, as much as I know about the conflict, just based on my background and, and what I listen to, uh, Gary Kasparov has a very kind of, uh, crystallized viewpoint on this and i just have to refer to him in this case and what it, basically his viewpoint is that america at this point i was i would hope would would have led more you, i think america's Biden administration has done actually pretty solid job as far as 
uh, sharing the intelligence that Russia was going to attack. Nobody believed him. A lot of analysts did not believe that Russia was going to attack. I didn't believe it. And then it actually happened. So the, the, the actual intelligence was good. And the way they were sharing it made actually a lot of sense. The problem is that you, Russia, uh, America was giving weapons to Ukraine in preparation for a guerrilla war with the assumption that Ukraine was going to lose fast and then you would have an Afghanistan situation in the 80s where the Soviet Union was in a quagmire and they were just being picked apart by these guerrilla forces in, in Afghanistan. And the understanding was that's exactly what would happen in Ukraine. Ukraine would be taken with a matter of week, weeks, maybe less, and then you'd have a guerrilla warfare. And that's why they send the javelins, they sent the stingers, because those are weapons that are armed by one person. And they can basically take down an airplane or a tank by themselves, right? But right now, the situation has changed. We now have seen that Ukrainians are not only able to do a, a guerrilla war. That's not even a case. Ukraine's able to resist on its own with inferior uh, armor, inferior equipment. They're able to not only stop, they're able to counterattack. And, the, and kind of putting a pin in that for one second, what America needs is a strategy, right? And and I'm I'm when Biden said in his in his address in Poland, was he what he said, you know, this for God's sakes, this man cannot stay in power or something to that effect. He walked that back. The problem is he should not have walked that back. We need a strategy. And the strategy might not be the strategy is not to overthrow a democratically elected leader, which you can argue if Putin was democratically elected, I would definitely argue that. We don't we don't have to get into that here. But you have to have a strategy for Putin. So the strategy is we don't have we to have a leader in Europe who is an 100% imperialist who is using military power to take territory, kill civilians, commit war crimes is unacceptable. So one of two things can happen. Either Putin stops doing what he's doing or you have somebody else in power that stops that stops that that action. And so that's the strategy that has to happen, right? That's the only two ways that it can play out. And so based on that, if you're looking from, a, from this issue from the Ukrainian perspective, the only way, based on everything that Putin's ever said about Ukraine, he doesn't think Ukraine exists as a real country. Ukraine for him is an artificial state and that it, and that it doesn't even exist. So for, you, for Putin's existence itself is against the interest of Ukrainian uh, sovereignty, period, right? So... The only way that Ukraine can defend its own liberty is if it fights for it. And the way it has to fight for it is, the, is to fight with the military. And the problem right now is that it has, Ukrainians probably at this point have the best military force in all of Europe based on their experience. The only thing they don't have is the equipment. And what equipment do you need to beat the Russians? Because javelins and stingers and all that stuff is only good in defense, right? When, the, when they're already at your doorstep and you can shoot a javelin out your window, right? But we're talking about taking back territory that was yours. You need tanks. You need armor. You need air. Not even air superiority. You need to have just enough to not let the Russians have complete air superiority. Offensive as opposed to defense. Exactly. Offensive opposed to defensive. There's, there's all kinds of missiles that, Russia, that America can send that we can, for example, Ukraine can launch a missile into... Russia, like a Russian military base that's sending air raids into Ukraine, right? But then, going back to your point, does that escalate the conflict? Do we get closer to a nuclear war? And on that point, I have to defer to, again, what we talked about on the podcast the first time. We're looking at the same, a similar situation to World War II, right? So what were the goals of Neville Chamberlain in 1938 when he made a deal with, with, uh, um, with Hitler? You know, it was to, oh, we need to do whatever we need to do because of the trauma of the First World War, we need to do whatever needs to happen in order to avoid another escalation into World War II. 
and what happened with that appeasement, right? Mm. So we're way past that because, and one of the things is funny when we kind of had a side chat about this before we started the podcast, what we talked about in the previous one was if Russia invades, that could mean the start of World War III, right? So at that point, the framing of the situation was, hey, Russia, Russia attacks, it could be World War III. But the problem is the West has been like, no, no, they've, even though they've already given enough cause for an escalation of the conflict, we're still going like, well, guys, let's not escalate this. Right. Well, they're pushing with everything they got, and we're saying, well, let's not give, let's not give pushback because we might escalate this into a nuclear war. But the answer to that question moving is- the line. We yeah, keep moving the line back. Exactly. We keep moving the, the goalposts. And the, at some point, you have to ask yourself, this, this bluff will always be there, right? Russia will always use the nuclear card no matter where they're attacking, right? Because the next, after Ukraine, if Ukraine falls, they could say, they can invade Latvia, right? And they can say, well, if, and if NATO gets involved to defend their own NATO country, we're going to use nuclear weapons. At that point, are you ready to defend NATO and risk nuclear war throughout all of Europe? You, you can use the same argument and say, well, we don't want to escalate, right? But there's a thing on a piece of paper that says that you need to defend your NATO countries, right? Are you willing to do that? You willing to follow the piece of paper even though you're risking nuclear war? Would you be and, – and with something that the West already hasn't done because of the 1994 Budapest Memorandum where Ukraine gave up their nuclear missiles in, in, in exchange for a promise from the, from the UK, from the US, from Russia, from Russia that their territorial integrity will never be in question. And yet here we are. So Russia's already taken a big dump – excuse my language here <laughs> – on – an agreement so did the united states in a way and the uk so for i think for us at this point any written agreement doesn't hold any clearance and i think the price we pay now to call the bluff is much lower than it would be five years from now four years from now ten years from now and another blurred line is you know nuclear weapons i've heard you say this but what if it's you know 10 miles off of a nato country in ukraine instead of the other one what if it's chemical warfare it's not quite nuclear, but blows into Poland airspace. Like, I, I agree with you that you know doing something now is is the move, and that would be U.S. sending offensive weapons. So, it's it's tricky. I mean, this whole topic is complex. Um, I, I think another reason I wanted to bring Vlad on is because you know there's there's plenty of news that he's seeing, but but like he's alluded to a couple times, he's talking to his dad, he's talking to his mom, he's talking to people that are on the ground. You mentioned yesterday. You, know, you have family in Mariupol right now who are what hiding in basements. I mean, what what does it look like day to day for some of the people you're talking to? So, for example, that's not my family, but that's that's my one of my closest friends. His grandma actually is in Mariupol right now, and so she's in one of the pockets that's still controlled by the Ukrainians, and she doesn't have access to uh, clean water, doesn't have access to all the nutrition she needs, and she's you know she's in her seventies, so she's in a completely deteriorated state, and they can't do anything to help her, right? And again, this is Russia, not uh, being able to provide humanitarian corridors and basically pretend like they're going to give uh, protect humanitarian corridors and they bomb humanitarian corridors or just letting the refugees escape to Russia. They won't let the refugees escape to the West. I mean, this is uh, this this conflict is already escalated to such a point where we have you know civilians that are dying by the tens of thousands. Um, and to say that. Uh, to, for us to kind of shy away from taking that uh, burden on ourselves and say, hey, the West, we need to do everything we possibly can, short, and I'll agree with that. Like, you, I get it. America doesn't want to send, you know, me as an American, I get it, to send troops on the ground to risk American lives to defend Ukraine. I get it. That we don't, Ukrainians don't need that. They've shown that they can defend the country very well, being very under-equipped. 
we don't need to, we don't need American troops on the ground. We don't need NATO troops on the ground. We just need, the Amer- Ukrainians just need equipment, and they need as much of it as as fast as possible. And that is, and if America thinks that sending offensive equipment to Ukraine is an escalation, I mean, then you're in pretty bad shape. And I hope that, and I hope there's a lot of stuff already happening in the background. And I think there is a slow movement that they're sending more and more offensive weapons. It's just not happening fast enough, you know, in my opinion. Yeah, so certainly a lot of people in need. Vlad, I think we've touched a lot of our talking points. Um, I'll ask if you have anything else. And then I'd love to see if there's a way that us that we can help here uh, from the States. Anything we missed, though? Um, I think the only thing we kind of missed is uh, maybe, I, I know we this was a big topic when we talked last time in the, in the podcast was the informational warfare yes. aspect of it. And I think that if you're talking about informational warfare, uh, Russia's kind of lost, right, as far as the whole world. Uh, if you're looking at what's what's rolling in the U.S., uh, you're looking at what's uh, even Germany, who is kind of half and half about the Russia situation. G- Germany has had basically a policy of, uh, hey, ec- closer economic ties with Russia, because their opinion was if you have closer economic ties with a country that's even, let's say, not democratic and dictatorial and maybe even aggressive, they would not want to escalate conflicts for risk of losing business yeah. with- uh, Keep with- your enemies close. Right. And that look how that worked out, right? Right. And so now Germany's in a position where they can't wean themselves wean themselves off of Russian gas for another year and they're basically giving billions to a country that's killing Ukraine killing Ukrainians, you know, invading a sovereign land. So I think that um the informational warfare has been very important. Uh even even though the West I think has won, and I think social media has played a big role in that, even though social media has gotten a bad rep recently, especially, you know, you know, attention uh that is taken away from young people and stuff like that. But I think that what you see here is truly the best version of social media where really all these human stories and uh, videos of these people that are suffering, people that are um, under incredible stress, these resilient Ukrainians, uh, you, you know, Zelensky and the Ukrainian troops and the suffering people, like it really shows a very dire picture. And I would say mostly very accurate picture. Of course, there's some propaganda on the Ukrainian side. There's they want to raise morale, so they show more. You know, they they release images of uh, Ukrainian drones destroying uh, Russian tanks, for example. But I think in general, it's it's painted a very like a compelling picture of how. I mean, when's the last time you saw a conflict where it was so almost crystal clear that it's good versus evil, democracy versus di- di- dictatorship? You know, a free country over an oppressive country, a David and Goliath story. I mean, this is a. I mean, they're gonna. They're going to make so. I mean, there's there's going to be this is going to be a story in Ukraine like for the future generations of this is how we defended our uh, our country. And I'm saying, and I'm I was born in Ukraine. I'm an American citizen, and you can see that in this podcast. I'm saying our country, our people, our president. Like this is kind of this conflict is is kind of drawing out a lot of my Ukrainian strings, and uh, and it's hard. You know, it's it's hard to hide that. And uh, so as far as um, Ukraine. Um, you know, they, they need as much, to kind of wrap that up, they need as much help from the West as possible. But as far as the informational warfare, they've, they've, they've won. But even now we have like some of our friends, Russians that are saying all kinds of stuff. So one point of contact is the Bucha massacre, right? So it's completely disgusting military war crime by the Russians against the Ukrainian people, right? And so the way that Russians are, are framing it is that it wasn't us, it was the Ukrainians that did it. It wasn't, it was actually, and then, and then a few days later, well, actually it was the British military. It was the British, British, uh, uh, intelligence agency that staged that. And then later it was like, that was actually the Americans. And the reason why is because Bucha massacre sounds so good in English 
that that was the reason why they chose that town to stage it, right? So their propaganda can't even keep up with each other. But the problem is people are still listening to it. And initially, I had thought that the young people were more sophisticated with kind of sorting out the garbage from the social media and from in, and having more sources on the internet. But the problem is that the, unless you have a VPN and even some VPNs in Russia, they block a lot of the sites like CNN and even like Fox News and, and, and New York Times. You can't even get an accurate picture. So you have a lot of these young Russians who are still actively supporting this conflict. I mean, they're buying shirts with Zs on them, Z, right, being one of the things that they're painting on Russian tanks that go into the combat in, in Ukraine. I mean, it's it's they're still even though the war I think has been generally won by the Ukraine as far as information. I mean, we're still seeing the propaganda machine in Russia at work, and luckily, I think um, we're 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 way past that in the West. I think, but again, we have the people of Russia are still being uh, completely zombified by this information. Yeah, bad news all around. But hopefully, you know, there are some things we can do. Uh, I know you've asked and researched some organizations where you could donate some money to try to help people on the ground uh, re recover from some of these incidents. Could you talk a little about those organizations, how you came across them and what they're doing? Yeah, so there's actually uh, donating to those kind of organizations is, is an interesting topic, too, because a lot of Ukrainians, particularly with the Red Cross, are very skeptical of all mm -hmm. these international organizations, because typically with those sorts of organizations, you donate to a general pot, and then they decide what they want to allocate to um, Ukraine. So that's why what I've been like, Razum is a really is a, is one that I've asked you to donate for, and some of our friends, which is basically more of like a it's a Ukrainian based organization that helps Ukrainians. Um, starting in 2014 when the Crimea was first taken, and they organized all kinds of uh, events, humanitarian aid, and now they're organizing humanitarian aid. One really cool way to donate. Uh, I'm not going to go through all of them. I mean, you can you can literally Google how to help Ukraine, and there's multiple sources, multiple ways, ways to help. But the, my favorite one is right now is Saint Javelin, Saint Javelin, and it's a really cool. It's a former journalist who's in Canada, and uh, he has an Instagram page as well. It's really cool. His name? Uh, Saint Javelin. I don't know what his actual name is, okay. but if you type in Saint Javelin, you'll find the, the the Instagram page. You'll find his website. But he donates to uh, Ukrainian Solidarity is where the proceeds from his organization go to. But what the way he raises money is that he sells these stickers, and it's a picture of like um, I think Mary Magdalene, and she's holding a javelin, right, a rocket propelled anti tank missile, and it's a really cool artsy like thing. And and it's and the stickers are, I think it's ten dollars Canadian, but of course a sticker. How much does it cost to print a sticker? They also have hoodies, they have flags, and they have all kinds of cool stuff. Um, and the proceeds, of course, go to Solidarity with Ukraine, and they provide humanitarian aid for refugees, for Ukrainians in need, and also for the Ukrainian military. So I think my probably recommendation would be to check out St. Javelin. It's the coolest, most interesting and uh, way to probably donate at this point. Well, Vlad, I appreciate you keeping me abreast on all of this information as it goes, because as we touched on, it's completely relevant even here in Western society, and it's more than troubling what's going on. I wish I had a more better word for that. Um, I appreciate your time today. Um, thanks for keeping me in the loop. Thanks for keeping the listeners in the loop. If you have the means, please donate to organizations Vlad talked about. I'll include some links in the description. We'll have this on podcasts and sponsors. Spotify and YouTube and Apple podcasts. So feel free to share this and other versions or the previous podcast to anyone, you know, if they're curious, Vlad, did we miss anything? I think that's it. Thank you for having me. Thanks all. Talk to you soon.